This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. Federal guidance on coronavirus distancing expires today and it will not be renewed. More states are talking about reopening, but others have yet to reach the peak of infection. You can go golfing again this weekend in New Jersey, but you have to stay off the beach in California. Alabama is reopening beaches. Macy's is reopening more than five dozen stores, but another 3.8 million Americans filed new claims for unemployment benefits. ABC's Karen Travers covers the White House. Karen, coronavirus has left the country a rather complicated and contradictory place. (laughs) That pretty much sums it up. You know, everything is now done at the state and local level, Aaron. I mean, the president a couple weeks ago said, remember, he had total authority to decide when states were going to reopen. And then within 24 hours, he had walked back from that and said, this is up to state and local officials. And that's what's been happening during the closures and now in the slow reopening. The federal guidelines for social distancing, what states were told they could follow as they made these big decisions, they expire today. And that's it. The president said they're going to be fading out. There's no plans to extend them. The vice president, Aaron, said that, you know, they've been incorporated into that blueprint for reopening. But notably, the president kind of interrupted him and just said they're fading out. That's it. They want to move on because the president doesn't want to talk about closures anymore. He really wants to talk about reopening. And he is hoping that some governors do that quickly and get the economy back up and moving. So in the absence of any oversight, federal oversight of what states are doing, Is there anyone really minding the store there? It's up to your governors. It's up to your local officials. I mean, I think that's been the interesting thing is that second round of arguing. At first, we were so focused on the federal government versus governors. Then as governors started getting uh, more decision-making power on this or or taking that power, then you had state uh, officials, local officials, mayors fighting with their governors in some places. We saw that happening in Georgia with the push to reopen there and the mayor of Atlanta pushing back very strongly. So this is now going to play out over the next couple of weeks. But I think the big thing, if you look at the last six weeks now with these federal guidelines, they were never mandatory. For the most part, states said, thank you, White House, and did what they were already doing or what they were planning to do anyway. And on that point, Karen, let me bring in ABC's Alex Stone to join our conversation from his post in Los Angeles, because today, Alex, the governor of California closed the beaches. Well, this is what's interesting going into it. It uh, it was believed that he was going to close all beaches in California. Most are already closed anyway. The the local communities have done that. But there are a few in Orange County and in Ventura County that last weekend opened up. And they did have pretty large crowds there. Locals will tell you, yeah, but everybody on the beach, they were all six feet apart. That those who weren't part of the, the same family that... They were social distancing, but the governor has made it clear he was unhappy with that this week. So now he's shutting down a hard closure under his authority. All of the beaches in only Orange County, not in Ventura County, but Orange County. Interesting that Orange County is where he gets a a lot of pushback. There is a uh, definitely a conservative element to Orange County. They are very angry about this right now. They're saying this is political, they believe. They say it is unnecessary, that it's arrogant. He says it's about public health and that it's got to be done. But this is not a uniform crisis in all of California. There are counties that are itching to open, Alex. Well, and that's the issue. The governor even saying that he understands that this has got to be 
locals getting involved and deciding what's best for their communities. But he says we're not there yet. He says as we move forward into different phases of reopening here in California, that then local communities will begin to mix in what works for them. Orange County claims that's what they're doing right now. There is another county in far northeastern California, very, very remote, in an area that often conflicts with Sacramento, uh, Modoc County. Only about 8,000 people, 8,500 people live in Modoc County. They are on Friday reopening up the county, even though there is a statewide stay-at-home order under the authority of the governor. They're saying we're not going to really listen to it any longer. They say they're being smart about it, that while they're allowing everything to reopen, the restaurants can only have 50% capacity, large gatherings will still not be allowed, but restaurants, the dining rooms can reopen, stores can reopen, shops, everything can go somewhat back to normal. They have zero cases of confirmed COVID-19 in Modoc County. They say they don't believe they need to be doing what L.A. or the San Francisco Bay Area are doing. They say they're different, and they feel like they're just ruining the economy. So they're defying the governor as well, the governor not showing any signs. Really, what could he do? Unless he sends up our state police here, the California Highway Patrol, to lock down that area if the sheriff... If the local leaders aren't going to adhere to, to what he's ordering, well then, and it's such a small population, he just kind of has to ignore it and seems like that's what he's going to do. So there are even these intrastate fights. ABC's Alex Stone with us from his post in California. And back to Karen Travers, our White House correspondent. So what's the federal government's role here? They've already prepared some stimulus. Is there more of that coming? There will be. It's not ready yet. Uh, That next round, a fourth stimulus package or direct aid, uh, that is being discussed right now, but they are nowhere near ready to do that. There's going to be an interesting standoff, though, because the Senate is going to come back into session next week. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says we are not approving more money until we are all back in Washington, because all of this is being done while lawmakers have been out of town and they're just writing massive checks and the money has been flowing. So McConnell is trying to put the brakes on that a bit. The House is not coming back next week. They said they're going to wait. So can they have negotiations on a fourth round of funding? We'll see. This big one, though, is going to be about state and local governments because you are hearing governors, you're hearing mayors say, we need help. Don't call it a bailout, but they say they need federal assistance because their revenues have dried up and they need money quickly. ABC's Karen Travers, our White House correspondent. Today in Teaneck, New Jersey, volunteers who have recovered from coronavirus and developed the antibodies to fight the infection donated blood. When a lab spins the blood, the cells go to the bottom and plasma floats to the top. The plasma is composed of antibodies that the hope is can be used to help the sick. Dr. Jeffrey Bender at Mount Sinai Health System joins us now from Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, where this drive's going on. Tell me about the criteria to donate plasma, because you don't want to take blood from just anybody. Sure, that's really important. So we're looking for people who had the virus at least two weeks ago and have recovered for at least 14 days and don't have symptoms. So anyone who's recovered and has been better, uh, we feel that they're safe to come in and get tested and make sure their antibodies are strong enough to donate. We don't yet know whether they convey immunity. What good might they do in someone who's currently infected? 
So we have a lot of previous data on similar viruses where this treatment has been helpful. So we're hopeful we'll find similar data, but it's still an investigational use. But looking at anecdotal data, we're quite hopeful that this will play an important role. I know you're there with Dr. Adam Jarrett of Holy Name Medical Center. And, Doc, I wanted to ask you, if this is to work, you're going to need an army of plasma donors. How does it look so far with the people who showed up today? We've been um, inundated, actually, with people who've been asking to donate their blood so they can uh, add to our plasma pool. And this is an opportunity for us to, to work with Mount Sinai to make that happen and we're very pleased about that. I mean, your hospital was an early hotspot in New Jersey for coronavirus. Um, has that subsided now to the point where you can focus on this kind of treatment? Yes, um, we are absolutely on the downward curve. We still have about 100 patients in the hospital with coronavirus, and we have about 15 patients in our intensive care unit. But we've really moved to another phase, and that phase is doing everything we can do to resume normal operations so we can care for those patients who are, who've been delaying their care. And so we're, we're doing cleaning and we're, we're, we're creating new processes so patients can come in uh, who don't have coronavirus and be safe. And we're confident that we can do that. But at the same time, we're preparing for the reality that coronavirus is going to be with us for a period of time and the real possibility that there could be a second surge. Doc, will the patients, the 100 or so that are still in the hospital sick with coronavirus, will they be given the plasma that you're collecting today? So it's hard to know whether the patients in the hospital today will get this plasma, but the blood banks have made plasma available for our our patient population, and I know that our patient population will continue to get plasma working with our blood banks, but it's difficult to know whether this actual plasma uh, or, or the blood that's being given today will be used directly for our patients. But we want to make sure that everyone who needs plasma, uh, can have access to it. And that's what what this uh, drive is about today. Dr. Adam Jarrett at Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, New Jersey. And coming up, our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, is here with another look at the hopeful drug remdesivir. I'm Aaron Katursky, and you're listening to an ABC News special. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent, Amy Robach. And with me, as always, is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we know that there has been some news about a drug that may offer some hope. We're talking about remdesivir. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you say this drug story is controversial. What do we know? It is, Amy. And this is really the story of the day about this potential breakthrough in treating critically ill patients with COVID-19. So let's break it down to start with what we know for sure about remdesivir. This is an IV medication that was initially developed actually to treat Ebola didn't work so well against Ebola, but in a lab, it showed good antiviral activity against the other coronaviruses, SARS and MERS, uh, also showing good activity in animals against those two viruses. Right now, multiple countries, huge international trials ongoing for remdesivir against COVID-19. And according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, as of yesterday, the study released preliminary data from the NIH trial revealed that it has shown that it can block COVID-19. Right. So we heard from Dr. Fauci giving that good news, but he also said there were some caveats. There are always caveats in science, Amy, and it is so important to understand as we interpret and analyze and review data, it's not a black or white situation. So the theories right now are that, yes, remdesivir has shown 
in these preliminary trials that it is safe and well tolerated in critically ill patients with COVID-19. That's very important. Yes, it absolutely needs more formal study, and it may show different effects when it is combined with other medications or therapeutic options for these patients. So all of that, we still don't have a good grasp on at this point. All right. So what do we need to learn? Well, look, as these continue, because just as the good news from the NIH study came out, there was opposing news out of China, which actually showed remdesivir severe, showed no significant benefits. So ongoing, we need to look deeper at this NIH data that is very important, has not been released yet. We need to see if it can be given to less sick patients, because remember, this was given to patients in ICU settings. So we want to see how it behaves if we give it to patients earlier in their disease. And we need to see, is there a clear survival benefit? Does this drug save lives? So those will all be things to be watching in the future. All right, Dr. Jen, answering your questions in the near future. So she'll be sticking around. In the meantime, though, we turn to ABC's Kira Phillips in Washington with all of the latest headlines for us. Hey, Amy, here's some of the developments that we're working on right now. The new jobless claims, 3.8 million people applying for unemployment last week. These new claims topping 30 million in just six weeks since the coronavirus pandemic began devastating our country. Those jobless numbers higher than expected, but still below record levels. At least 16 states are now beginning to lift shutdown restrictions and many businesses are slowly reopening. New Jersey residents will be allowed back into state parks on Saturday and in Iowa and Texas. Officials there are warning workers not ready to go back to work, even if it's over safety concerns that they may lose unemployment benefits. The mayor of Los Angeles says residents there are expected to be among the first in the country to get free COVID-19 tests, even if you're not feeling sick. However, frontline workers and those struggling with symptoms will get first priority. And you're going to need your shopping list and your face mask if you're headed to Costco now. The company announcing the new policy going into effect on Monday for adults and children over two. And Whole Foods now joining Costco and other grocery retailers with special hours for seniors. Whole Foods customers over 60 and those with disabilities can get priority pickup and delivery at stores and also online. And Amy, full disclosure here. My husband took advantage of the early Costco hours for seniors. It was a humbling moment, but I reminded him that 60 is the new 50. (laughs) Staying safe. That's what's important, Kara. That's right. We appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Well, one of the first known cases of coronavirus in the United States, as well as fatalities, were in the state of Washington. Here to give us an update on the Evergreen State's biggest city is Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin. Thank you for being with us, Mayor. And a number of states, as you know, are beginning to slowly reopen. We heard from your governor, Jay Inslee, who announced yesterday Washington's stay-at-home order will extend beyond May 4th with some restrictions eased. What do you believe it will take for Seattle to successfully reopen? What will that look like? So we're going to be very careful to look at the science as we did in making the decision to shut down. We know we need broad scale testing and the ability for contact tracing, meaning you go and find everybody who's had contact with someone who's positive to see if they are testing positive and need to be quarantined. And we are we don't have that yet here and we're going to need it before we reopen. Right. And in the meantime, as you know, small businesses struggling so much right now. What has your city done to help them? What more needs to be done? We are doing everything we can for our small businesses. Out of the box, we deferred all their business taxes. I put in place an order that said they could not be evicted so they could stay in place. We had a program to give small loans to small businesses 
Um, we're working really hard to keep them resilient, but the federal government is going to have to do more than they have done if our businesses want to make it through this. Now, we know Seattle placed a cap on the commissions that restaurant delivery apps can charge customers. In response uh, to your uh, area and in other cities, some of those apps have said, hey, we've already deferred or we've cut some of those fees and putting a cap on it is unconstitutional. What response have you gotten? We heard from so many businesses who are struggling to stay open and to feed families, frontline workers, and keep people employed. And some of the fees that were being charged were just outrageous. You had owners of businesses getting early and doing the deliveries themselves and working around the clock. So we, working with our city council, decided that really to, to do what we needed to do for those small businesses, we were going to put a cap in place. We think it's fair, and we think it also is one that, you know, if it's challenged, it'll hold up. You announced, this certainly made headlines, that you're going to either forego your entire salary for the rest of the year, or if that's not possible, you say you will donate it. Why is this so important to you? It's such a hard time for people right now. In Seattle and across America, so many people have lost their jobs. And in the city, we're, we've lost so many revenues. You know, We're facing some really big budget deficits. And so I, w- I was able to talk to my family. I'm really fortunate to be in the position that we could do it. But I wanted to forego that salary so that I would show that I'm in it for Seattle, too. Well, that's incredible leadership. Mayor Durkin, thank you so much for what you do and for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care. Well, now to the small business strong entrepreneur making a prosperous pivot in the face of the pandemic. The New Jersey restaurant turning its tables into a bustling grocery delivering service to customers in an entirely new way, all without layoffs. Here's ABC's Diane Macedo. Before COVID-19, Jacqueline Podhurst says business at her South Orange, New Jersey restaurant, Jackie and Son, was booming. Commuters would come in, um, families would come in, individual people sitting at the communal table, socializing, getting to know each other. Then suddenly, everything changed. We just didn't feel comfortable with people gathering once the news broke about corona and everyone getting sick. She says she and her husband closed the restaurant's dining room even before it was mandated, but quickly realized they needed to adapt. We talk to our customers every day and they're like, we're waiting in grocery store lines for hours and we're getting there and the shelves are completely empty. And I'm looking at them like, we can help. We already have all of the connections with our farms, all the connections with our vendors. So the whole staff got to work creating an online marketplace for grocery staples as well as food orders. It was a wild 48 hours. I did not know how to, you know, build a website, do any of that. Our waiters became grocery shoppers. Our dishwashers became bakers. They also physically transformed the restaurant. It was very nerve-wracking initially to make such a big financial investment. So we definitely took an initial hit, but we paid itself off relatively quickly. Thanks to those efforts, she says the business has fully rebounded. So you're back to the same numbers you were doing before this crisis hit. Yes. Have you had to lay anyone off? No, we haven't laid anyone off. We did have to take an initial cut in payroll, but everyone is back up to the hours that they were working before, if not more, and we are currently hiring. It's a reality she never saw coming, but one she's grateful for. What's your advice to other small businesses that are struggling right now? It's a really, really tough time for small businesses, but just be open to change and be willing to change because no one knows what the new normal is going to look like. 
And that is certainly incredible advice. Our thanks to Diane for that report. And we certainly wish everyone at Jackie and Son continued success. Up next, right here when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton with our Q&A and one of the insidious side effects of the ongoing pandemic, loneliness, is on the rise. Our Dan Harris here with antidotes to this growing problem. And then the healing power of music, a legend, joins us with new work. Stay with us. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So, Dr. Jen, joining us now with the answers to some questions that are making us think today. We've been having these conversations behind the scenes as well. We'll get to our first one. My husband and I both have sleep apnea and share a machine to clean our CP. PAP machines. My husband is an essential worker working outside of our home. Is it okay to share the same machine? Very difficult situation because we know right now there's preliminary evidence that CPAP machines can aerosolize the viral particles into the environment. That's just the CPAP machine. Assuming two people both have their own CPAP machine, those machines need to be cleaned. Sometimes they'll just share a cleaning machine. We don't have official recommendations or guidance on this yet. So if possible, you can get your own separate cleaning machine. That would be ideal. If not, be in touch with your provider and see, you know, what what their recommendations are. All right. We've seen the list of symptoms for COVID-19 grow. This next question addresses this. Can COVID-19 cause severe hearing problems? We don't really think so yet, but here's the qualifier, Amy. Loss of smell and taste, which have been reported as symptoms of COVID-19, and the CDC, in fact, just added them to their growing list of symptoms, those are actually central nervous system manifestations. So it is possible that some types of hearing loss can be affected by COVID-19. Again, we don't know whether it's temporary or permanent. We have to track that data. And again, the virus is about five months old, so yeah. we don't know yet. All right. And, you know, we talked about this next question several weeks ago. Haven't heard much recently, so this is interesting. The next question, I have read individuals with type O blood may be less susceptible to getting COVID-19. Is there any truth to this? Well, there's truth in that it was reported in Chinese data and the medical literature very, very early Early on from Wuhan, they collected blood types on people who were infected with COVID-19. They found people with type A blood more susceptible, type O blood less susceptible. Now, obviously, you can't change your blood type, right? Nor at this time should it change your perception of the risk. Um, and it definitely needs more research. But right now, the thinking is that maybe this would be helpful for healthcare workers to help stratify their risk when caring for patients, but not ready for prime time yet. It needs a lot more study. All right. And our next question with antibody testing, what if it shows I have both IgM and IgG antibodies? What does this mean? I've already gotten this question, Amy, from several patients. We have to remember there are a lot of different types of antibodies. IgM antibodies, usually with other infectious diseases, signify a current infection. Mm. IgG usually signifies that you have recovered. Again, right now, people are testing positive for both of those, and then they're left to wonder, am I still actively infected? 
We don't know yet. I know people don't like to hear that, but we can't just jump to an assumption in medicine and science. And it, it, it hasn't been formally studied yet. Right. So. And the whole antibody result shouldn't change your behavior as well. That we know. <laughs> Absolutely not. So whether you think you've recovered, whether you have IgG antibodies showing a past infection, which may or may not be a false positive, it should not change your behavior with respect to social distancing and protecting yourself and others. All right, Dr. Jen, as always, thank you. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Our next guest is a dear friend to all of us most of the time. He is a co- <laughs> he's the co-host of Weekend GMA, co-founder and host of 10% Happier, Dan Harris. And Dan recently dedicated an entire episode of his podcast to the issue of loneliness. And so I know you've been speaking to experts yeah. about loneliness. What did you find out? Well, first thing to note is that the thing we're all doing, hopefully, to keep ourselves safe, which is social distancing, can have an adverse health outcome, which is loneliness. And loneliness isn't just some mildly unpleasant state. If it goes on too long, if it becomes chronic, it can lead to health problems, like, as Dr. Jen would tell you, uh, low, uh, health, uh, heart problems, depression, dementia. And this is if it goes on too long. So you really have to keep an eye on it. No, it's a serious thing. And, and then there's the flip side. Many of us are experiencing yes. the opposite of loneliness, cooped up with our families for far too long. There was a record I used to listen to back in the 80s when I was into punk rock, and it was called You're Living All Over Me. And uh, that is a sentiment that's come to mind occasionally being cooped up with a five-year-old uh, recently. But the truth is, actually, you don't have to be alone to be loneliness. Loneliness yeah. is a subjective state, not an objective state. And it really has to do with the quality of your relationships, not only to other people, but to yourself. And really, that's the key variable. That is so true. So what do you do if you're feeling lonely? Okay, so you've got to work on the quality of your relationships. Mm-hmm. Just say you're cooped up alone or with people with whom you don't feel comfortable. You should make it a habit. And I talked to the former Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, about this, who's written a book about it called Together. His advice is every day do a call, preferably on video, to somebody with whom you have a good relationship. Work on that relationship. It can only be five minutes, five, ten minutes. And the key is do not be distracted while you're doing it. Don't have your phone out. Don't check social media. Don't check email. And maybe even make a pact with other other people on the call. We're going to pay attention while we're on this call. Makes a lot of sense. The other thing you say to do is acts of service. Well, see, the thing about loneliness is it it throws you into a threat state where we're evolutionarily wired to feel under threat when we're alone. So we're going to focus on ourselves. The way to break yourself out of that threat state is to focus on other people. It reminds you of your value, and it it connects you to other people. And that can be an incredibly helpful thing. It certainly can. I always say the same thing to my kids, and it makes a big difference. And the final tip, it leads from there, is just to know that you're not alone. We had a big loneliness problem in this country before COVID-19. Social distancing has put it on steroids. It's very easy to feel like everybody else is living their best life. If you look at social media, everybody's posting happy pictures. But the truth of the matter is loneliness already was a huge problem and it's a huge problem now and there's so much shame around it because people loneliness tells you the lie that you, that it's your fault that you're unlovable mm-hmm. the you got to get over that and reach out for help because that is the answer and i found just personally and i think i from 
anecdotally from other people I've talked to, I'm hearing from friends I haven't heard from in years yeah. saying, let's yeah. Zoom, let's check yes. in with one yes. another. And that's what each of us can do. We can be the person to reach out. Yes, it's beautiful. I mean, every Friday night we have a high school reunion now with my high school buddies. I love yeah, that. It's really cool. It's yeah, really we, cool. Have, we have a Friday night um, fun fest as well. It's happy hours, plural. That's what I call it. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, thank you so much. My pleasure. We appreciate it. And you're always a good friend. Thank I was teasing you. I, you. I know. Yeah. You're, I, that's, that's how I, I know that I'm not lonely is you tease me all the time. You tease the yes. ones you love. That's right. quality relationships. <laughs> there is much more ahead here on what you need to know. The community rallying to help others in the COVID-19 emergency on track to providing a million meals and other support. And then the pandemic performance by a legend in music, Wycliffe Jacques. New song, It's a Hope. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Welcome back. So many Americans struggling to make ends meet during this pandemic, especially when it comes to feeding their families. And in this crisis, Sikh volunteers across the country are cooking up meals and delivering groceries to families in need. Joining us now is Jatinder Singh, National Humanitarian Aid Director for United Sikhs. Thanks for being with us. And in the middle of March, we know that your group received an urgent request from New York City's Office of Emergency Management for vegetarian meals. Tell us why your organization is uniquely qualified qualified to help in this. Yeah, thanks for uh, covering this on the show. We truly appreciate it. And, uh, well, uh, we've been working, United States is a humanitarian organization uh, working across the globe. And we worked with New York City before. We worked with FEMA, United Nations. We do a lot of projects. We've done over 50 disasters uh, across the globe. And uh, one thing is there that we do serve humanitarian meals and, uh, since all Sikh temples are known as Gurdwaras, and they serve hot meals, vegetarian meals. So it's well known in the community uh, who to go for when you are in need of vegetarian meals. And all uh, Sikh temples, Gurdwaras, are set up for community kitchens. So in time of disasters, it's, it's ready to go, basically. They become shelters. That is amazing. Uh, so, it was well known. Sorry, that is amazing. Can you tell us what you've been able to accomplish so far? Oh, sure. Uh, besides those uh, 30,000 meals, uh, so far uh, across USA, uh, we're almost touching million meals right now. Uh, New York alone, 100,000 plus. Uh, in Washington State, about 50,000. Uh, and 25,000 plus meals delivered to hospitals and rehab centers. And uh, in California alone, Central California, about 500,000 plus meals. And uh, over 20,000 PPE uh, equipment was delivered to hospitals as well. So there's a lot of work going on uh, in many states uh, where we have volunteers, where there's a need. Illinois, New Jersey, Texas, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Florida, Utah. There's uh, a lot going on. Yeah, it's remarkable. We're seeing all of your volunteers throughout the country doing their part. How are you keeping them safe? Uh, well, first thing is uh, social distancing uh, is very, very important. 
Um, and second, everyone must wear gloves. You know, we make sure they, they're trained before they go out, you know, and their face mask and face shields. We also have face shields covering full faces as well. Uh, it, it's very important to make sure our volunteers are safe. And when they go out, and because this is, I mean, we've done so many disasters. This is one of a kind, totally mm. unique, uh, where the enemy is uh, not visible. And it might be in us. It might be somebody that we know. It's very challenging, actually, this time. But thank God, you know, we're managing, you know. Yeah, it's, and you're it's, going uh, out there d- despite all of that, which is remarkable. What are the reactions like from the people who receive these meals and services from your volunteers? Oh, oh, my God. They are just overwhelming. You know, we get so many thank you notes, thank you letters, uh, uh, letters of recognition from hospitals. It's, it's, uh, it's too much. The words can't describe it. I mean, this is... Uh, the fuel for the volunteers when we get appreciated, basically. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's there's a lot of needy families out there. And when they get their stuff delivered, groceries delivered in, you know, apartments, there are handicapped mm-hmm. people stuck or seniors stuck in apartments. And they can't go out or they have family members sick with COVID-19. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's tough. Uh, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Well, we're certainly appreciative of all that you do. Jatinder Singh, thank you. And thank you to all of your volunteers who are there on the front lines each and every day. It's our pleasure. We're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts today. I love that so much, Amy. You know, it it reminded me of something I read from a top psychologist about how we can safeguard our mental health during these really stressful times. And it goes by the acronym WIN for what's important now. And from a medical standpoint, I think we have to focus on the basics, just take it one day at a time, try to feed our bodies, our spirit, our minds, and keep it with the Fs, which are friends, family, facts, not fear, and faith. And I think those things can get us through this medical crisis just one day at a time. Yeah, we're all learning lessons each and every day with each other, through each other, and because of you, Dr. Jen Thank you, and you. Thank you. (laughs) Every day, every hour, things are moving, changing so fast, and that's why we're here for you. The answers you need, the information you want, we will get through this together. Coming up next right here, marking the distance between us all with new music inspired by the quarantine, Grammy winner Wycliffe John is here when we come back. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Social distancing may keep us physically apart, but it is music that continues to pull us together. While quarantining at home, my next guest was inspired to write what he calls a song of hope, and he's here to tell us all about it. We are so happy and honored to have with us Grammy Award-winning musician Wycliffe Jean. Wycliffe, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me with y'all today. Well, I love the name of your song. It's called Distance because it certainly speaks to the times. It talks about how we can be separated but still mentally close. Was there a specific moment when the lyrics just started to flow for you? Well, my wife lost her uncle. I lost my uncle through the virus. My best friend lost his mom and three days later lost uh, his father. So this has been front and center for us. Um, and at times, you keep in mind that the funerals is different um, when you use when you lose somebody to the virus. And, and so the idea of the song of distance is to just say, 
no matter the separation could not stop us. You know what I mean? Like we still could be together. And at the same time, it's a tribute to, and the song I say, heroes in the front line working overtime. Also, everyone that's out there while we actually in our house being quarantined that are putting themselves in the front line. You know, this is a song for them as well. It's a beautiful message. And so we can't wait to hear you sing it. So I'm going to let you take it from here. Why Cliff Jean with Distance? Yeah, yeah. Even with the distance. Thank you so much, Wycliffe John, for sharing that with us. Stay well, stay safe. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.